From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. In today's polarized politics, we tend to think of conservative Republicans as supporting Second Amendment rights and liberal Democrats as opposing those rights. But is this accurate? Are there liberal gun owners who support the Second Amendment? The reality is, gun ownership and support for the Second Amendment is much more broad and diverse than many people realize. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Laura Smith, Communications Director and National Spokesperson for the Liberal Gun Club. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Laura, your organization, the Liberal Gun Club, hosted a booth at SHOT Show recently, I saw an interview you did, thought it was pretty good, wanted to invite you on. You were saying that the reaction at SHOT Show was overwhelmingly positive to this strange idea of liberal gun owners. Now, I have to say a lot of our listeners may be shocked to hear that because the word liberal is generally used as a synonym for anti-gun. And I admit, when I wrote articles years ago, I used to do that, and and I learned better But generally speaking, conservatives will support gun rights and liberals will oppose gun rights. I'm just curious about what a liberal gun club is. Can you explain that? Sure. So we are the largest um, and probably most prominent left of center pro Second Amendment organization in the U.S. Um, We're gun owners. We're real gun owners. We own everything. Um, We, you know, at our last annual meeting, there was a Gatling gun. Uh, I mean, we we shoot, we compete, we have uh, self-defense training. But one of the things for us is is we're a place for people left of center, but who support, um, you know, who have firearms and support the Second Amendment to come and, and work on that from a different party position, you know, than is what's usually done. So why a liberal gun club? I mean, if you support gun rights, there are a lot of ranges out there. There are a lot of organizations couldn't you just go shoot guns with the organizations who are already out there? What What's the point of specifically having a liberal gun club? So for us, there's a couple of things. The, the club actually started, I mean, jokingly, we joke about this all the time, but it actually kind of did start as a safe space. Um, it started as an online space for people who were left of center to talk about guns and politics um, outside of the more conservative gun boards. Um, and, and I don't mean, you know, all of them, but I mean, we can all think of some really, you know, that there's some that are really toxic. And, and so people were looking for a space, Hey, you know, my politics don't fit everything else, or I'm really left, like pretty hard to the left of Joe Biden. And I want to be able to talk about that without getting piled on about all these other issues. Um, so that was kind of how it started. But but what it evolved into is, so we look at rights as, as our saying is every single civil right for every single person. 
Um, and we really believe that. And, and so we go now um, to politicians and we approach this as root cause mitigation. What we don't want to do is we don't want bans. We don't want all these things that don't work. We want to solve the underlying problems. What are the underlying problems to violence? Why is um, what are the underlying problems to increases in suicides in um, youth communities and and in, you know, primarily middle class men um, between 35 and 65, right? Like those are the two groups that are, are raising. We go and talk to the politicians on the left who never get talked to about this. You know, they might get shouted at or they get told, you know, they, they get every town coming in and giving them incorrect information. We go in and say, hey, look, you know, we think these ideas that you're being fed aren't effective, but here's all our, our alternatives to that. And by the way, we're your constituents. So it's to give voice to a constituency that's not heard most of the time. Are you successful when you're talking to Democratic politicians? Because, yeah, uh, I, I mean, like here in Ohio, there used to be some cross-voting, but not anymore. I mean, Republicans vote together, Democrats vote together, and you just don't see Democrats ever supporting, even though like out in the hallway at the state house, they might say, yeah, I kind of understand where you're coming from on that. I sort of agree. But then they'll get in a hearing and they'll vote with their Democratic colleagues. It's just there's never any cross-voting at all. We do. And and so like one of the ways you'll we have successes is not so much killing a bill, right? And and a lot of times, I mean, this is a little bit of, you know, the background of politics. When you're going in, if your goal is, you know, well, I have to kill the bill completely or I haven't succeeded, you know, that's not always the the way that things get done. But what we go in and say is, okay, hey, look, we know you're gonna try to pass this whole slate of anti-gun measures. Here's why these three are really bad. And by the way, they're completely illiberal and you're going to have all these problems with them. Here's ideas on how to get rid of those. Let's change those. Here's why they don't work. And and we have had really big success with that kind of thing. Um, we in Washington, the, the new laws that have come out in Washington have been a problem. Unfortunately, we don't have our lobbyists there that we used to, but you know, when we were there, we we held back a lot of things for years. Um, we have success with people talking about um, things that are attached to firearms, like mental health laws and mental health care and, and getting people to talk about those things. We have a lot of success there because our way of looking at it is if you can solve these underlying problems, you actually end up protecting the Second Amendment rights because all of a sudden you don't have the underlying societal problem that has people saying, well, I want to keep my kids safe. And the only way I know how to do that, the only people who are talking to me are telling me that I have to do that by banning an AR-15, which, you know, you and I might know that doesn't work, but somebody who doesn't know firearms doesn't necessarily know that. And so we go in and we talk about other things and we do have successes that way. So, you know, I kind of had the impression that you guys were more of a shooting club and didn't get involved in politics, but it sounds like you do. I mean, are, are you, uh, I mean, you're saying you're involved with legislation. What about with, with elections, uh, litigation, or all of these other aspects of politics? Are you involved in all of that? We are. Um, we actually just uh, signed on to one of the, um, the brief in New York, the appellate brief in New York that had to do with the First Amendment rights. Um, the it's a case that has to do with the New York law saying you have to turn over five years of your social media history. 
for our members, that's terrible. I mean, our members could lose their jobs for being firearms owners, you know, and and because lots of them work in liberal areas. Um, so dealing with that kind of thing, we we deal with that. We, um, uh, you know, we we've done those briefs. We have another brief coming out. Um, we are a shooting club too, though. I mean, we definitely have shooting events. We go out and we have all the fun. So, so we kind of do the big broad range of all of those things. So I just want to back up a little bit because I know that some of our listeners are, are still maybe, you know, shaking their heads a little bit and thinking, ah, I don't know. Does the liberal gun club support any gun control policies at all? And, and, And I want to get really specific. So what about like AR-15s? Do you support any bans on AR-15s? No. What? Okay, that, that was a good answer. <laughs> what about what about suppressors? Um, suppressors are safety devices, and we actually support removing them from the NFA. Magazine, you know, so-called high cap magazines, thirty or more rounds. I mean, surely your members must must want them banned, right? No. No, we definitely don't want those banned again because those bands don't do anything. There's no, they don't help anything. So why why are we going to do the things that don't help? I mean, I, I think to my members and and to us, the biggest frustration is if we keep doing these things that don't work, we keep having the same problems we're having. It's you know it's that definition of definition of insanity. You know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And and so to us, no, like that's they. There is no difference. And, and you know, I mean, I talk about this with liberal friends a lot, and they're absolutely shocked when I say you realize that the compliance rate in places that have had these bans is zero, right? I mean, functionally, it's zero. No one turns anything in ever. Um, and so I don't think that a lot of our liberal friends realize what these things mean until they start talking to us. And, and that's the other thing that for our members, we often become the safe person for their liberal friends to talk to about firearms. Um, And so we have all these resources for our members to say, hey, well, you know, I know I don't like the idea of banning standard capacity magazines, but why? Like, how do I tell this to other people? Okay, well, here's our blog post on that. Here's our writing on that. Here's Here's the underlying research on why these don't help. Well, what about universal background checks? I'm going to get you, Laura, on on something here. Universal background checks, you know, you must support that, right? So what we support for a universal background check is, okay, so first, absolutely no registration. That's that's a no-go for, I've been doxxed. I'm a gun owner in California who had to register an AR. I, I've been doxxed by the government here. So so obviously government registration is a, is a hard no-go for our club. But what we would support, because this would be helpful for responsible gun owners, is a free or extremely low cost, on your phone or computer, access to NICS that if you wanted to transfer a firearm to somebody, you could run the background check and you could have some format that said, I transferred a firearm, I ran the check. Here's the proof. That you could say, because to me, if I sell my firearm to somebody, I want to know I'm not selling to a prohibited person. I want to know I'm not selling to a felon. I want to know I'm not selling to somebody violent. That we would support, but it can't have the, uh, it, it can't have a couple of things. It can't be, well, you have to go to your local gun store because 
how many people in inner city neighborhoods can get to the local gun store, right? Um, they don't exist here. There is no local gun store near San Francisco to go do a background check. Um, so there's things like that. And, and it can't be prohibitively expensive. So do we re- do, would we agree with some sort of background check system? Yes. Do we agree with universal background checks as they generally exist and as a registration? No. So, but you're talking about a voluntary, like a service or an app that somebody could use if they chose to, but purely voluntary. Yeah. And we support fixed NICs. I mean, we support fixing the system that exists now, the government system, the federal firearms, not, not like the California DOJ registration system, but the federal system, the way it works. I mean, we supported fixed NICs, adding more information into that, that kind of thing. We have supported that because there does need to be some way of making sure you're not selling to a prohibited person. You know, that is okay. The idea of, of, of a universal background check. Oh, and we definitely don't support waiting periods. For, and I mean, the, a lot of what a lot of people don't understand about universal background checks is really what they're going for is they don't want individuals to sell their firearms to other individuals. So I have a shotgun. I don't need it anymore. You want a shotgun. And I say, hey, Laura, you know, you're living next door to me. And I say, you know, I'll sell you the shotgun. And we can do that transaction here in Ohio. That's perfectly legal. We don't have to go through any process, no paperwork, no background check, if we don't want to. Right. Is that a, is that a problem for you? That's not really a problem for most of our members. As the club, we say, okay, look, if you want to say we have to have a mandatory background check for every firearms transaction, then what's the return on that? Is the return on that that... Now, if I decide I live in California and you're in Ohio and I want to buy your shotgun, because we can't do that now, unless you ship it to the FFL, I pay all of this. Could we do that transaction? That would be great. So so that's the discussion with us is you have to convince me you're giving me something of value if you are going to make everyone have a universal background check. Now, I live somewhere that has universal background checks. The problem here is how they're done. Um, So you have to go to an FFL. You have to pay all this money to do the transfer. You have to wait 10 days to get the firearm, no matter how many you own. And for somebody like me that has a safe full of guns, why? Um, You know, and and so we have objections to that. But on a federal level, if you're going to do this, what's the trade? Could there be a trade? Maybe, but I haven't heard a proposal that works. And, and again, there's no proof that they do that the universal background check as envisioned with a registry would actually do anything. Well, we've had something like that proposed here in Ohio, this idea of coming up with a voluntary system and you could run background checks. We opposed it. And the reason we opposed it is we think that anything that might be voluntary today could become mandatory tomorrow once a system is set up. We just didn't want the system set up at all. So, right. you know, that was that was our argument because bottom line, we trust fellow citizens. We don't trust the government. Yeah. And, you know, for us, I, I like the idea of being able to have, I would really like to be able to run a background check on someone I'm sending a firearm to. I like that idea because I live with that now. And it is nice to know that. I mean, there have been, I actually had a transaction that I had to stop because the person didn't pass the background check. You know, so to me, it's like, okay, what safety that maybe provided some safety there, but 
the fact that I had to go down to the local gun store and had to wait 10 days to find out. And you know that the background check was done in five seconds, literally, you know, the whole system for us, maybe, but it's not. It, so on UBCs, we are, we believe that someone maybe someday could come up with something we'd agree with, but we haven't seen it yet. Now you mentioned this idea of root cause mitigation. So I, I'm, I'm going to just kind of go over all of these other, I just skip over these other questions I had, because it sounds like you guys are pretty on board with the second amendment. There, there might be some minor areas of disagreement, but, uh, I'll assume that we're we're pretty much more or less in the same place. Right. But on your website, you talk a lot about root cause mitigation. Now, when we're asked, because we're asked this a lot, well, if you don't support this law, you don't support that law. Well, what do you support? You know, how would you reduce violent crime? Number one, I tell them, well, that's not our job. We're a civil rights organization. It's not our job to fight crime. Go talk to the, the people who do that. We also say... Well, look, we have all kinds of laws about violent crime. Enforce those laws. Right. You talk about root cause mitigation, which sounds like you're going really beyond that. Can you expand on this idea of, you know, you're not just dealing with the idea of guns, but you're going way beyond that to try to uh, deal with violent crime or suicide or, or other problems? Right. So, so our viewpoint on that is, we really believe that if you're going to do further legislation, we kind of agree with you. So part of root cause mitigation is enforce and fund the laws we already have and prove that they work, right? I, I mean, I live in California. The book on California gun laws is like two and a half inches thick. Um, and it's, I'm a lawyer and I find it mostly incomprehensible. And I literally have to read it with my computer open to be reading like the criminal statutes. It's terrible. Do we, so, so our, a lot of our position is one, streamline what we have and then enforce them and fund them. Two, um, we believe that better mental health care and funding for mental health, especially for children, would do more to fix violent crime than just about anything else we could do. Pairing that with um, community policing efforts. So we are not, by the way, we are not anti-police. Um, we are reforming things that help both the rank and file police officer on the ground and the communities they serve that we agree with. So things like, um, the program in Richmond, California, where, um, a police chief came in and he realized that the way they were patrolling, the cops in Richmond didn't know their neighborhoods. They, they would like rotate out and they wouldn't be on the street. They were just in cars he made essentially he made everybody beat cops at some point and so that they knew who who was in the neighborhood who didn't belong there what was going on on the street they built up community trust which is a huge problem in a lot of cities right from all different angles those kind of things and the violence in that city when that police chief did that dropped i mean hugely dramatically things like that so we support studies like that there's um there's a guy in Minnesota, there's a police chief in Minnesota who one of the things he did in his town was he built a community center for youth and he put a precinct in it. And like he literally had like the kids coming in after school, they had a safe place to go and there were police there and the kids could do things like know their bikes would be safe so they could keep their bikes in the community center so they didn't get stolen. Things like that where you have 
when you're stopping the petty crime, then you start stopping some of the bigger things. We believe in things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, not only firearms, we, we believe in, let's look at the programs that help suicide and, and fund those. We know we need those in the U S that's two thirds of firearms deaths, maybe more now, um, in the U S let's look at funding those. If you're talking about firearms laws, that's a firearms law that makes a difference. And it's, it's not a law. It's not a criminal, you know. We're not looking at more criminal laws on the books. We're looking at how can the government help fund programs that help people have better lives? Because when you do that, you have less crime and you have less unfortunate outcomes with firearms. And when you have less unfortunate outcomes with firearms and crimes, you have less people clamoring for them to be taken away. Well, now you mentioned suicide, and this is something that BFA has been involved with for quite a while. Uh, you know, suicide to two-thirds of the quote-unquote gun deaths every year. And we've been very successful in Ohio decoupling suicide programs from legislative mandates. You know, that was always the thing is, well, let's pass a law, let's pass another law, and it doesn't seem to help. And also it creates distrust with the organizations who are trying to deal with suicides. So uh, I'm one of the people that has been going in talking to some of these organizations, telling them about, look, if you're going to address gun owners, and that's who you want to address because that's the most successful means of completing suicide, you can't be abusing them at the same time. You can't be taking away their rights. You can't be threatening them. You can't be, you know, condescending and so on. You have to stop with the legislative stuff, and you have to stop making assumptions about who they are. And over the last several years, we've been really successful about that to the point where we're actually on the cusp of having statewide suicide-funded programs, which completely eradicate any connection to legislation whatsoever. And multiple organizations are doing this now. They've found it very successful. They're going into gun stores. They're communicating with the people who own the guns. You know, it's building trust and it's educating people. And that's really all we had to do. And it was just, look, let's just make it nonpartisan. You know, we all, I mean, I know people who have committed suicide. You know, we all know that or know someone who knows. And why would we want to destroy that messaging by talking about taking away your guns? And, well, why do you own guns? Why do you need that? And all of these, these kind of things that people would say. And a lot of the volunteers involved are gun owners themselves. So it's been very, very successful. Yeah, we work on that, too. We work with Walk the Talk America, um, which is an organization that's actually working to work with the mental health providers to learn about gun owners and communication with gun owners. We fully support that. We, um, you know, we've talked with people and, and there are no good solutions on this right now, especially in California. But talking about like hold my gun programs. Um, how do those work? Uh, we work with organizations that talk with veterans. Um, about like how to um, how to encourage veterans to seek help if they're having a mental health crisis um, that isn't tied to well this is going on to some sort of record and it is a problem it's a real problem for gun owners if the first question you go into a therapist's office and the first question is do you own a firearm that's going to shut people down right there there's just no trust so we talk about that a lot we we work with organizations on that. Um, so we agree with you. Like, you know, 
the government's not the solution to all of this. We have to have these, you know, areas outside of that too. And and to to open communication, that's one of the things we do is we provide an avenue of communication for people who realize, hey, I agree with you on like 95% of things and I don't agree with you on guns, but, you know, I trust you enough to talk to you about it. Um, can you talk to me about a firearm? I mean, one of the things, one of the programs we have is something called Make It Safe. And we say, okay, owning a firearm is not for everybody. You know, I mean, it's the, it, they're, they're power tools, right? I mean, it's the same thing is not everyone needs to own a circular saw. It's your choice to own that. But if you live in a house where you have a firearm, you need to know how to make that firearm safe at any given time. And we teach a program for non-firearm owners about how to make the most common firearms safe and unloaded at a time. And, and so things like that, where we communicate to people about gun owners believe in safety, we believe in safety. Um, here's things we can teach you about what does that mean. So now I want to get to a, a hard question, and we talked uh, about this before the podcast. I'm not trying to ambush you on this, but I'll bet a lot of our listeners are thinking, um, okay, you support the Second Amendment. You seem to be genuine about that. But what happens when you vote? Do you vote for people who support the Second Amendment? In other words, if you're voting for liberals who are trying to take away gun rights, isn't that a problem? How do you handle that when elections come around? So I think the the thing here is, um, and and we get asked this a lot, a lot, a lot, and and so for most of us, you know, kind of the off the cuff answer is, well, don't assume you know who we vote for, um, but you know, part of it is, kind of, no one has these great choices, right? I mean, we talked about this. If if you're a firearms owner um, and you're say more on the conservative side, but you want to be able to use marijuana even just for medical reasons. Who are you voting for, right? Like, how do you balance those choices? And for lots of our members, they're not single-issue voters. And, and honestly, I think a lot of firearms owners think they're single-issue, but when it came down to it, they're not. Um, and, and I think if people really look at it's more of a value statement of how do you vote on issues generally. So there are certain candidates that I would say most of our members don't vote for. Um, an example would be Gavin Newsom. I am a liberal and I would, I, I've never voted for him. I can't stand it. Right. And it's not just because of guns. Like I think his gun policies are a symptom of his other bad policies. So things like that, right. Like, we look at our choices, but I will tell you in California, the, the candidate who opposed him last time, it was, well, which civil right am I going to vote for having taken away this week? And so I think a lot of us have that problem and a lot of our members have that issue of, of who is going to take which of my civil rights. Um, I think a lot of our members vote at a very local level. And a lot of our members vote in um, primaries. And I think that's something that gets missed a lot is, is primary voting is huge so that they do vote for the most gun friendly of the left candidates in the primaries to try to get that voice across. But one of the other things we do is well, maybe we vote for somebody who's not as great on the second minute as we'd like, um, but because they're great on these other policies that are affecting our lives in huge ways. But then we go and we go and we send them postcards or we, you know, we, we encourage our members to call their representatives from all levels, from your city hall all the way up. Um, you know, our members are pretty politically active and, and 
we encourage our members to go build relationships and go talk to their politicians about why. It's not just, I don't agree with you about it banning AR-15s. It's, if this is all you're doing, it's just window dressing. But hey, here's some alternatives that we know work. Let's talk about these. So why do you think that uh, in, in current politics, Republicans tend to be on the pro-gun side, Democrats tend to be on the anti-gun side? Is that something real? Is, that, is this just sort of a for-show kind of thing? Or what is it? Why, why is there a divide like that? Because, you know, I, I read a certain amount of history. I'm looking at, you know, what liberalism has meant in the past. Why wouldn't liberals support gun owners? You know, support yeah, support owning guns. Well, how did we get to where we are? In other words, where we have this dividing line between the parties. It's, I'm not sure it's making sense to me. I think it's, I think it's political fundraising. Um, I mean, I think the parties are like this on a lot of things. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that the you know the Republican big R party supports that I think that doesn't make sense for the party of small government, right? Like. Why would you support this? And and I feel that way. I completely agree with you. The idea that you would not support the Second Amendment um, ownership of firearms, especially for self-defense, is a completely illiberal idea, right? It is liberal to support firearms and to support firearms owners. I mean, it's it's kind of a joke, but there is some truth to the further left you go, you get your guns back. I mean, people who tend to be more liberal tend to be firearms owners. I mean, a lot of our members are firearms owners because of what has happened to them directly in their life, not just because they're the traditional firearms owner who grew up hunting or grew up that their parents owned firearms and their grandparents owned them and that they grew up with them. A lot of our members didn't grow up that way, but came to it because I actually really have this need for self-defense and it's protected and I'm going to exercise that right. So as to why it's that way in the politics, um, I think it's the past 15 or 20 years of Where's the money going? Um, I think there's a lot of money behind it. And I don't necessarily think that gun owners, you know, I mean, we talked about this before the podcast. Gun owners aren't really a monolith. When you look at it, you know, the stereotype is the very conservative, you know, upper middle to upper middle class white man over, say, 35. Um, and that we're, is we're wearing a wearing plaid. He's got a beard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or you know, uh, bear, uh, drives bear, an SUV or bear, truck. Beer yeah. belly, beer belly. Yeah, yeah. Elmer you know, lives, <laughs> lives in Middle America. Probably lives if he lives in a suburb. It's you know a far out suburb. Like it, it's a very particular stereotype of who a gun owner is, and that's just not true of who gun owners are in the U.S. and and hasn't ever really been. But I do think I think it's some. I really think it's fundraising more than it's real. I mean, I know several, you know liberal politicians now not at the federal level but at more local levels that i know that are firearms owners so uh, let me let me ask you this did did you grow up in a rural area or in an urban area i grew up in an urban area urban area because i'm i'm wondering if part of this is sort of the urban rural divide you know it wasn't that long ago that we had a democratic governor and he was liberal, you know, sort of more old-fashioned liberal or what I would call, you know, the blue-collar liberal kind of a guy. But he was a big gun owner as well. He would show up at our events. He supported our bills. And that was at a time when you could get Democratic support 
on gun bills. It's not that way. It's never that way anymore. And certainly not for us. No, I agree with that. I think that's true. But I think if you look at the political spectrum kind of writ large, you're seeing that, right? I mean, you're seeing that on all kinds of things. You can't get Democratic support for these. You can't get Republican support for this. And I think guns have just gotten caught up in that very polarization and, and somehow something that really shouldn't be you know, a political issue has become a political issue. But again, like our organization exists. We don't really exist for the conservative gun owners, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, it's like we welcome everybody, but our organization really exists for liberal gun owners to have a place to go, to have resources, to talk to other liberals who own farms, to talk to to get information on, hey, my friends are asking me, I'm a firearms owner, how do I handle that? To get training where they might not be comfortable because they belong to a marginalized community. Um, I want training, but I don't want training from somebody um, that's more the stereotype. We provide that. Um, or or in some cases, depending on where they live, they have the they have run across firearms trainers who are actively hostile to them, you know. That exists, unfortunately, in the community. And and so we provide training for that. Um, We provide all of these resources and then to go and provide uh, resources for the legislators as well. I mean, so one story that I have, I went to D.C. I was part of the D.C. project when it started and I went to D.C. And I called um, at the time it was Barbara Boxer's office uh, because I didn't think going to Diane Feinstein's office was worth even bothering. Right. And. Barbara Boxer's office agreed to meet with me. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from the woman responsible for like vetting firearms research and like, you know, like the the uh, the intern for Diane Feinstein, who had to like read all the firearms related stuff. And she called me and said, I hear you're coming to DC. Will you come to our office as well? Really? Okay, sure. And and she asked and she said, you know, I don't I have to read all this stuff? And she and these these are really young kids. They're in their early twenties. Maybe some of them are even teens. These are college students for the most part, or just out of college, so young twenties. She had never been around a firearm. She didn't know anything about them. And she said, "I don't have anyone to ask technical questions to because if I call the NRA, they hang up on me. I don't know a single person to ask this question to. Can you be my technical resource? Sure, absolutely. Because if you're trying to write legislation and you don't know what you're doing." That's part of why we're getting such bad stuff coming out is that people who are writing it don't know, don't know just the bare mechanics of things. Do you think it's even possible? And I asked this on the last podcast and my guest was pretty hesitant about this idea. Do you think it's possible to decouple the idea of Second Amendment rights from this partisan politics that we have today? Or do you think that everything, every issue just gets sorted into two boxes And if it ends up in one box, then they own it and the others are going to reject it. It, Is is there any path forward where we could just stop having this debate? Yeah, I think there is. And and I think you're going to start seeing it, maybe not this year, right? But, But in five years, if you look at who's buying firearms, right? Who are the biggest growing communities of firearms owners? It's minority communities. It's women. Um, it's, it's really the non-traditional gun owner is who is buying firearms. Now that was one of the things that when we talked to manufacturers at shot, they said, we know this, we know that our, 
you know, the people purchasing from us are changing. And that's going to force a political change because when you have a broader group of firearms owners who understand, you know, this background check law is just a burden on me and a criminal isn't going to do it no matter what. So what we're doing doesn't work. But hey, I'm a liberal. When you have a big, broad group of people who are starting to understand like the background to things, not just the philosophical ideas, but the actual, hey, I can't go buy a firearm because my city has literally gotten rid of every gun store within 50 miles of me and I don't have a car. You know, when you start having that, we're going to start seeing the changes. And, and that's what's starting to happen now. Well, uh, as I told my guest on the last podcast, you know, I can always hope. I, d I don't, you know, it's hard for me to see how this is, is going to move forward, just as partisan as everything is. But I would like to think that this is one issue that can be decoupled from the politics. So uh, I'm glad that you're working on that. I'm glad that we agree on a lot of things. Laura, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and suffering my slings and arrows. I know that you get these questions all the time. You probably get tired of it. But uh, I, I just think it's really interesting because I think firearms are there for everybody. The Second Amendment is in the Constitution, for goodness sake. And when we shouldn't be picking and choosing which rights we're defending and which rights we're trying to do away with. If anybody wants to check out the Liberal Gun Club, where can they do that? Uh, it's theliberalgunclub.com. We're on uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Liberal Gun Club. You can find us. Um, you can, if you go to our webpage, you can link to us. You can see our webpage has a blog that has our writing. Um, a lot of kind of you can find our position statements there. You can find information about our trainers there. You can find information about our events and our membership there as well. Is there an Ohio chapter? There is an Ohio chapter, I believe, and I have to find out who is running that. Now, we're going through chapter elections right now, so I have to figure that out. Okay, but there's, I, I think there is. I'm not sure where it is, but you have local chapters. I assume people could you know, check out a local chapter and go to one of your events or, or whatever and just have a different route to get to Second Amendment rights. So sure. uh, thanks again, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.